All right, guys, let me steal you back from your tables there. Hope you figured out all the confusing things and sorted it all out because I'm really not going to touch any of the confusing stuff this morning. <laughs> no, there's actually, I'm starting to, to really despise Genesis part two as a, as a study from a teaching perspective because I'm sure you're feeling this as well as you go through the content, but there's so much in there every single week. Um, I was, I was whiteboard, whiteboarding out like everything that sort of the way I develop sermons or teachings is like, I just kind of like write out on a whiteboard everything that's significant, all the little verses and all the little, especially when you're dealing with narrative, you're kind of like looking at story development. And then I go through after that and, and I'll like star things that I think are meaningful for, you know, men or whatever audience I'm talking to. And then I'll try to like connect them and, and draw out some points, draw out some, some valuable things to talk about. Um, and I think I had eight for today. Um, we don't have time for eight, so I narrowed it down to three. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot in all this stuff. We're, we won't have time to cover it all. Um, if you have questions about things that the, the study brought up, I did do some commentary reading on some of the confusing parts, so I'd be happy to you know, shoot me an email, whatever. We can have a conversation. Um, but, uh, but we're just going to focus in on a few things here. But uh, because we're, we're going so quickly through the book of uh, Genesis, I want to start off this morning with narrative overview, just a real quick glimpse of, of what happened. I know you've read it on your own. I know you just talked about it, but just a reminder of, of all this. And actually, before I do anything, I, I meant to do this. Men's Prayer Breakfast is this Saturday. So if you've missed it, there's the QR code. Whoa, the TV died. We, we lost one TV. Well, there's the QR code to... Um, to sign up, we'd love to have you join us. Um, uh, it's free. We just need to know you're coming. I, I think they're going shopping tomorrow for all the food. So make sure uh, make sure you get signed up today. It's the we're going to cut it off after today, so we can make sure to have food. But hope you'll join us um, tomorrow or Saturday, eight to nine thirty is is when that's happening. Um, narrative stuff though. What what happened in uh, in the book this week? So chapter seventeen, if you'll remember. Uh, another reminder of uh, God's covenant. He's, he reaffirms uh, God's covenant with Abraham. This is the fifth time, if you've been counting, this is the fifth time God has appeared and spoken to Abraham. So um, four of those times all happened very quickly. In, in chapters 12 through 15, the last one, 15, was the big covenantal ceremony with the walking between the, um, or, or the, the floating pot and the, the flame, the, the torch, those weird things last week going through the, the uh, calf that had been cut apart. Um, but now God's been silent for, for a while. I think that's significant, but he's been silent for at least 14 years. We're not quite told when chapter 15 happened, but we know chapter 16 happens and Abraham is, is 80, 85 years old and now he's 99. So for 14 years, we have no contact between God and Abraham, which I just, if I'm putting myself in Abraham's shoes, I'm assuming that he probably felt responsible for that, that here God was talking to him a lot. And then the Hagar thing happens and uh, suddenly God goes silent. And the promise that had been given four times, he's now probably thinking to himself, did I lose it? But God shows up, and I love Abraham's response there in verse 3 of chapter 17. He falls on his face. You, know, you can just feel how excited he is that God is, is not done. And then he gets the great promise, uh, no, it's going to be you and Sarah. The child is coming next year. Isaac's going to be his name. Um, in the next three months, you're going to be pregnant. You know, Huge uh, promise given, reaffirmed. He gives the sign of the covenant there, the circumcision. 
Uh, he gives them new names. Uh, he gives them the promise that the child is indeed coming. So that's chapter 17. Uh, it ends with Abraham's obedience. You know, the, him and his whole household are circumcised that very day. Quick obedience contrasted with Lot's, you know, slow obedience, uh, as we'll see in just a little while. Chapter 18 is uh, another encounter with God. So the sixth encounter. Um, and this is the three visitors showing up. Um, presumably, we can sort of see from the context, it's God and two angels. Um, so though you see the number three and you're probably thinking Trinity, um, I don't necessarily see that here. I think, I think the context sort of plays it out that the Lord appeared in some sort of theophany, um, some physical presence, embodiment um, for, for Abraham to interact with there. But, but then two angels were with him. Um, and you get this encounter where, for the first time, Sarah's brought into this conversation with the Lord. So, so far it's been Abraham and God talking, but now Sarah gets included. She gets to hear the promise. In one year, there's going to be a child. Isaac will be his name. You're going to be pregnant. And she laughs. You know, she, can, this, can this be true? And, and uh, then she denies it. And God's like, no, you did laugh. Uh, I, I, I find that little interaction so funny. Um, which is like, like, we do that too, right? Like we just sort of uh, assume God doesn't see our every little thought and our every little, little motivation. And, and, uh, and God does. He, he doesn't strike her. He, he doesn't... Um, he doesn't uh, attack her for lying to him, but his truth is unassailable. I mean, just, you know, no, you did laugh. You, you really did, Sarah. Um, she's like, well, you're right. Um, so I, I think that's funny. But uh, chapter 18 ends, God gives this, uh, you know, foresight of what he's about to do in Sodom. Um, he decides to tell Abraham what's going on. And then you get this interesting conversation between, between Abraham and God where he's sort of pleading for God's mercy, which brings up the question, you know, did, was, was Abraham really changing his mind? I don't think so. I think this is a, God knew what he was going to do. Uh, he knew there wasn't even 10 righteous people in Sodom that, that were going to allow uh, him to restrain his, his wrath on that city. And yet he's showing uh, in, in this passage to Abraham, and I think to us as well, he's showing his nature as a merciful God, that he really would restrain his wrath towards a whole city if there were 10 righteous people. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful reality. I mean, uh, there's truth in that for us. We won't have time to look at that. But that was chapter 18. Chapter 19 uh, is the, the story of Sodom's wickedness, God's wrath being poured out on this city for, for all their wickedness. You get a glimpse of what that wickedness was. We were told back in, in chapter 13 that they were a great city with great wickedness before the Lord. But now we're sort of seeing what that wickedness was, sexual immorality, you know, out the wazoo. Um, we'll look at that more in just a little while. But, um, but in the midst of the judgment that is coming on this city, God rescues Lot. And I think there's a lot of richness in there. That's actually where I'm going to focus in just a moment. But, but, uh, but you see the whole encounter there. It ends, you know, a very bad chapter gets even worse there at the end as uh, Lot's daughters conspire this scheme and, and execute it to rape their father. And, and so that, that happens. Um, wickedness has come home to roost in, in Lot's house there, for sure. But, um, but, but a lot of stuff on, on display in chapter 19, for sure. And then chapter 20, <laughs> uh, it's almost a complete repeat of what we saw in chapter 12 last week, where Abraham lies that, that uh, Sarah is, is his sister, not his, or deceives is probably the better term, but uh, it's my sister, it's not my wife. Uh, he's, which, man, you just learned this lesson, man. Like, God is faithful. He's able to protect you. He's promised to protect you, and he's proving his faithfulness again and again. Why are you still making this mistake? If you feel that sort of fatigue towards Abraham, just bend it in on yourself and look in the mirror and remind yourself how many times you make the same mistake again and again and again. Um, that could have been its own point, but again, we don't have time for that. So, um, 
For the sake of time, I'm going to skip our theme overview. There's our four themes. Uh, you absolutely see every single one. Hope you're still tracking those um, as you go. But I'm going to jump straight into um, three points I want to highlight. And, and I am going to zero in on uh, chapter 19 and, and what's going on with Sodom, uh, what's going on with Lot in the midst of that, because I see some really profound things, um, the, biggest, the, the, the biggest things that I think will be meaningful for us this morning. So uh, first point here, first thing I want to bring up to the surface, flirting with sin will destroy you and your family. Playing around with sin, flirting with sin, drifting towards sin is no small deal. It always ends badly, and I think Lot really showcases this. You see this all over the Bible, but, but uh, I, I just can't not bring this up with, with men in this room because um, what plays out with Lot and his family is tragic and, and really sad. We, we're not surprised when we get to chapter 19 to find out that Sodom is a wicked city. We were told that back in chapter 13. But what should be surprising is that Lot has become a wicked man. You know, when you catch this moment where he is in the midst of this city trying to break into his house to molest two angels, you know, and he decides, the way I'm going to solve this is by giving my my daughters to these men. So the whole city, all the, it says all the men of the city have come. I'll I'll give my daughters so they can molest them instead. If that feels wrong, it's wrong. It's, it's wicked beyond measure. I mean, this is, this is deep wickedness, which should be stark to our minds because Lot, remember, he's been, he's been with Abraham. He's been, you know, his family worshipped other gods back in Ur and among the Chaldeans where they came from. But in chapter 12, when God begins to call Abraham to Canaan, calls him to this land, I'm going to be God to you, he begins to... Abraham begins to worship God. He builds all these altars. And he's lots of part of the family. So like he's being discipled in godliness. He's learning godliness. Abraham's learning godliness. I mean, they're, they're beginning to commune with the Lord. And so there's righteousness at first, but now a complete radical shift has happened. And what I want you to know and see clearly is that this did not happen overnight. And I, I pointed this out briefly last week, but I want you to see it clearly here. If you have your Bible and you want to flip through it, back in chapter 13 is the first place we see this, um, where, where Lot is faced with the choice of land and he chooses to go to the east. He goes towards Sodom. Uh, and it's the better land. He, pro- he, he probably didn't choose it because of Sodom. Um, and yet he might have. Maybe subconsciously he was already drifting towards what was happening in Sodom. Because uh, he ends up, we're told specifically in verse, uh, what is it? Well, I didn't write it down. But he moves his tent as far as Sodom. So it sounds like he's not in Sodom yet, but when he chooses that half of the land, Abraham goes over that way. He, he drifts of all the land he could choose, everywhere he could live. He, he's just drifting towards Sodom. And we already know it's wicked. Um, and then when you pick up with him in chapter 14, he's not outside the city anymore. Now we're told in verse 12 of chapter 14, he was dwelling in Sodom. So he lives there. Tradition tells us that Lot's wife was actually a Sodomite, that he, he met her there. And his daughters are, are children from that marriage. Um, we're not sure of that, but, but uh, regardless, he made his house in Sodom. And when we pick up in chapter 19, this has become his home. Um, we, we pick up with him in verse 1 in chapter 19, and he's at the gates. That's where like, the guys hung out. You see that in the Bible repeatedly. Uh, the men of the city like, just went to the gates, and they, they, it was the communal part of the city. The women are taking care of the house, and the guys are... If, if they're not working, they're chatting. They're, they're there together. It's like McDonald's on a Friday morning for a lot of the men of Emmaus Church. Um, but, uh, but, but that's what played out there. Um, it's his home. These are his brothers. He, he refers to them as brothers when he's addressing them as he's taking his daughters 
outside to say, here, here, take them instead. He says, brothers, don't do this wickedness to these men. Do, do it to my daughters. I mean, it's, uh, he calls them brothers. It shows his familiarity. His two daughters are engaged to men who are outside a part of this mob. You notice that? Like he, the angel offers him the chance to get his whole family out. He goes out to his sons-in-law who are part of this disastrous situation. I mean, it's, it's his home, and it didn't happen overnight. He was gazing at, drifting towards, choosing to build his home among sin, and eventually it comes home to roost. Eventually it, it pollutes his own heart um, to the point where this decision to give up his daughters feels rational and logical to him. It feels like the best answer in this moment. Family, this is how it goes. Like sin is, it, it, when you... When you your heart first starts to flirt with it, to drift towards it. It feels like just a small, controllable thing. It's no big deal. It's just a part of my life. It's not controlling it. It's not hurting anybody. Um, It allures us and it entraps us and it feels like a little house cat. But then one day you're going to wake up, it's a lion ripping your face off. I mean, it just, it, it always ends in death. James 1 teaches us that, that, that uh, it's desire in our, in our life. Sin doesn't come from God. Temptation, God doesn't tempt anybody. Temptation comes, sin comes from our own evil desires that uh, give birth to sin. So there's desire, gives birth to sin in the real life. There's a gestation period, a, a, a flirting, a flirtation with sin, a, a, a toleration of sin that gives birth to sin in our real lives. And sin, when it's fully grown, it says, brings forth death. That's, that's James chapter 1. Um, and this is absolutely what's playing here. Sin is not to be tolerated. It's not to be flirted with. It never ends well. And, and tragically for Lot, it didn't just bring death in his own life. It, it brought sin and, and destruction to his whole family. Like, and that's the part that I really want to dive in here for, for you guys as men. I mean, I know some of you are younger um, and, and aren't to the season of life where you're married yet and aren't to the season of life where you have children yet. Um, and Lord willing, that God will take you through those seasons as, as you progress through, through life. There's a lot of rich joy in it. But, but men, God has placed upon us a mantle of leadership. We talked about this the first week. When we live up to that, when we uh, seek the Lord and develop healthy spiritual worship in our, in our own lives and, and cultivate that for our families, like life spreads and, and it grows and Lot is the exact opposite of that. As he is drifting towards sin, as, as he has uh, consigned himself over to sin, as his failures start to appear, uh, appear and destroy his own life, the shrapnel from that just goes flying. I mean, his wife dies. She loses her life as they're fleeing. She refuses to obey this commandment, don't look back. You know, we don't know why she looked back. We don't know what was in her heart. Was she mourning her, the loss of her home? Was she mourning her her kitchenware being destroyed in the, in the fire and brimstone, brimstone. I don't know. I don't know why she turned back, but she did. Her heart was still in Sodom. She didn't want to be, be going forward. Um, and we don't quite understand this whole pillar of salt thing. Was that like God turned her into a pillar of salt or did she, was the turning back like a lingering? Was it a, on their way? She just refused to go and therefore the, the sulfur and the fires, it was all falling. Did it just like hit her because she wouldn't leave. I mean, the, the text isn't clear enough for us to really know there, but regardless, she dies. Lot's sin, his failure to lead his family, his toleration of them living in this wicked city, it's, it's pressed itself into his wife and his kids as well, the daughters too. What happens at the end of chapter 19 where they're intoxic, getting their, their dad drunk so that they can uh, rape him and, and have children by him, like, where did they learn this? Where their dad raised them. Like this is this is 
Lot's failure as a father. This is Lot's failure as a husband. This is Lot's toleration with sin bearing fruit in his family's life. And so that's the point I want to bring forward is, is when you flirt with sin, it destroys you and destroys those around you. The shrapnel of our, the consequences of our failures don't stop with us. Wouldn't that be great? If your biggest mistakes, you could be the only one who, who feels the consequences and you could deal with those with the Lord, repent and move on. But tragically, you see this again and again, your failures will bear consequences in, in your wives and your kids as well. This is one of the hardest things for me as a pastor. When, I'm a, when a couple will come to us and their marriage is falling apart and, and they'll, there's been some issue, there's been pornography or adultery or, or, or some brokenness. And on the other side of that, maybe there's willingness to forgive. Maybe there's willingness to try and work it out. But on the other side of that, there's now cold iciness. There's consequences to that behavior playing out in the marriage. And she's withholding and, and, and uh, she won't forgive me. And, and it's like, well... Well, man, you screwed up. Did you expect it to just all be healed in one moment? You expect your sin to not have lasting pain in your life? We're even seeing this in Abraham. Like, like uh, Abraham and Sarah are, are 14 years now past Hagar. And I think when Sarah laughs at the tent, as God says you're about to have a child in one year, I think part of that laughter, I don't think they're having any intimacy whatsoever anymore. I think she's like, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think there's consequences to Abraham's failures there. Even though it was Sarah's idea, there's consequences. So just, just, just I want you to, to see that the sin Lot chose to live among has now come to live in him. It's come to live in his daughters. It's a warning for us. We're meant to see it. There's a great quote from um, Herman Bavink, Wonderful Works of God, fantastic book, but uh, he, he writes it this way, sin is a slippery plane. We cannot go along with it in a way and then turn around at some arbitrary selected spot and reverse our course. A distinguished poet spoke profoundly and beautifully of the curse of the wicked deed by saying of it that it continuously gives birth to evil. That's what sin does. It just, it just takes over. Um, we've talked about this quote before. You've probably heard it from when you were growing up, but sin takes you further than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, keeps you longer than you want to stay. It's, it's there in the Bible again and again. I feel like this, this point I bring up every minute of the word cycle because it's in the Bible everywhere, and yet we don't heed the warning. So I just, for one second, before I got two more points, but before I move on, inspect your hearts, men. Inspect your hearts. Where are you being um, careless with sin? Where have you been living outside of Sodom? Where have you been living inside of Sodom? Where have you been allowing your daughters and your wife to live inside of Sodom? Where are these things playing out? It won't end well. It can't end well. Heed the warning here. Cut it off. Repent. Turn. Make some changes so that you don't end up in this spot. Um, but there's good news too. Second point here, God saves sinners through intervening grace. He saves sinners through intervening grace. This is, I think, the most profound thing that jumped out to me in this entire uh, four chapters that we studied this week is what plays out with Lot in the midst of this sinful city. Lot is not righteous. He is wicked. He, what does he deserve in this moment? He deserves to be left in Sodom and the sulfur to rain down on his head too. This is not God. You know, Abraham's pleading with God, if there's 50 righteous people, will you save the city? If there's 45, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 10, will you save the city? Uh, there was one of the questions, I think, in the study was, how many righteous people were there in the city? 
And you might have been tempted to write, well, four, because four got out. No, they're all wicked. Like zero. The answer is zero. There are no righteous people. And yet, and, and you can feel that. Look, flip, open your Bible, flip to, to chapter 19. I want you to see this in verses 12 through 16. It's just like magnified. And it's meant to magnify God's grace. So the angels are there. All this wickedness is playing out. And they're like, we got to go lot up. Go get your daughters. Go get your wife. Get your sons-in-law. We got to get out of this city right now. And uh, so he goes and tries uh, to get his sons. His sons think he's joking, which is always how sinners respond to the, the word of God's judgment. Oh, yeah, God's going to judge us. Oh, yeah. No, he is. He is. Uh, but it says that takes all night. So for verse 15, morning is dawn, dawning. Sun's coming up. And the angels are urging him, we got to go up. Take your daughters. Get out of here. You're going to be swept away in the punishment too, Lot. And verse 16 is just shocking to me. It says he lingered. He knows what's coming. And he's still, like, he's so insensitive to the judgment of God, to the, God's work to try and save him here. Um, and then so much so that the men have to just grab him by the hand, seize him and his daughters, and just carry him out of there. And it tells us why right in the middle of that sentence. Verse 16, read that. The Lord being merciful to him. Family, this is all of our salvation story. I mean... Man lingers in sin and God grabs him with grace. That's just the story that we all have. And, and it's more obvious if your testimony is, oh, I was stuck in drugs and I was having sex with women and I was, I was on the streets and God showed up one day and, and brought me the gospel. And you know that testimony, you can feel like Lot. He grabbed you and pulled you out. And that's beautiful. But if you were six years old when you got saved because you were raised in a Christian house and one day it just made sense, you have the same story. The Bible's really clear, like, all of us sin and go apart from God. Romans 3 says, no one seeks for God, no, not one, no one understands, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Your heart would never turn towards God, even at six. Even before you've been impressed by this world, your, your wickedness that you've inherited from Adam, that sinful nature, that depraved nature, the biblical doctrine of total depravity, you're born with it. And it starts working its way out as soon as you can talk, as soon as you can uh, speak. As soon, uh, you can see in a one-year-old sinful depravity. It doesn't take long to show up because it's in us. We keep inheriting it generation after generation because of Adam's failure. Um, and all of us, if left to our own devices, that inclination of soul will lead us to run from God always. And the only way any of us experience salvation is if God grabs us and gives us grace. And you might say to yourself, well, that's not how it worked for me. I chose God. I, I figured it out. I went to church enough and I read the Bible enough and I figured it out. Well, family, I, I'm telling you, you read the Bible enough, you, you read Jesus enough, and you'll figure out, no, God did it in your heart before you even did it. Hebrews 12 says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the founder and finisher of our faith. He wrote faith in your heart. He regenerated you. There's an interesting study in theology about the ordo salutis, the order in which salvation plays out in our lives. And biblically speaking, I totally believe this. The more I've studied it, the more I believe it's true. Regeneration happens before faith. God takes you from death to life, makes you alive before you express faith in him. That's what it means when Jesus in John 6 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God does something in us before we respond to him. And it's not perceptible. It's not experiential. You're not, you're not feeling that drawing necessarily. You're not feeling that faith being written on your heart. But God is 
saving you, grabbing you out of sin and, and pulling you to himself just like he did with Lot. So all of you in this room, like all of you share this story. This is how God saves us all. Uh, all of you can use these same words. God rescued me with his grace. That's why I'm a believer. That's why I've trusted in Christ because he grabbed me and, and saved me. Did, did Lot deserve to be saved? No. Was Lot righteous? No. That's why it's called grace. You know, it's not deserved. We didn't earn it. We haven't done it. God steps towards us with grace. And his, his story that we're seeing here is ours as well. God intervenes with grace every single time. So if there's pride in your heart, if you like, you know, look down on other sinners and say, oh, you need to figure it out like I did. Um, if you're that Pharisee and <laughs> that Pharisee in Luke 18, that's like, oh, you know, he's, he's strutting in front of the temple and praying before God. Thank you, God, that I'm not like all these sinners. Uh, and then Jesus says, and then there was a sinner, a tax collector who shows up and he's just beating his chest. Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, which one of these guys went home justified? Is a sinner. <laughs> you know, that, that's where our heart can be, arrogant and prideful if we, if we don't understand this concept. But understand it clearly. God interrupts our, our sin, intervenes in our, in our inclination towards evil, and, and interrupts with His grace. So uh, beautiful truth there. Big theme in Genesis for sure. Last one. Uh, we'll be real quick here. God is just and His wrath is real. I just want to not skip this um, because I think hell is an under-taught on, under um, under-focused on part of our lives as Christians. Um, and yet Jesus talked about it all the time. And I think here in, in chapter 19 of, of Genesis, you're catching the second of, together with the flood, that was the first, but you're catching two glimpses of God's wrath. And it's beginning. I mean, we don't get a full development of the theology of hell until really you get to the New Testament. You get glimpses of it in the old, and then Jesus really gives us a lot more insight into what hell is and how it all works. But uh, in fact, we're, we're going to see a little bit of that this Sunday. Come back, story of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, and, uh, and you're going to catch a glimpse of Jesus describing what hell is like. It's a real place. And what's happening here in Sodom, God's wrath towards sin, is a, just a picture, a small earthly picture of what hell is like. And what I want you to know in what happened in Sodom and what happens with hell is that there is no injustice in God whatsoever. God is just. Wrath is real because God is just. This is sinful immorality that's abhorrent that's playing out in, in Sodom. I'm not going to describe it all, but what we're, what we're told this city was doing was awful. And you know what's, what's really wicked? This was profound to me. There was like almost corrupted discipleship happening in Sodom. Did you notice when it's describing all these men coming to the door, the old and the young, everybody. You have the old people discipling the young people in sin. And it's just awful. Not, not the way God's intended the old to pour into the young, but just a wicked... You think our society has fallen apart with the sexual revolution. Sodom, Sodom's way past us. Um, this was awful. And so... When God pours out sulfur, when, when judgment is given here, it's deserved. This is what sin always deserves. It, anytime we feel like these, that hell or, or what's happening inside and what happened with the flood is unjust, it's, it's us not grasping the seriousness of sin. Um, but I think this story is meant to magnify the seriousness of sin and to magnify the justice of God um, by showcasing exactly just a small glimpse of how God deals with sin. He deals with it with judgment. He deals with it with wrath. Um, and all sin will be dealt with this way. Your sin must be dealt with with wrath. And, and that's what the cross was. Like either you pay for your own sin or Jesus pays for your sin. That's what propitiation means. That's what we're taught in Romans chapter 3. Penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. 
You will either pay for it yourself and stand under God's wrath and His fire and brimstone, or you will hide under Christ who drank it for you. This is what he's talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the night before the crucifixion, he's in the garden, and he's sweating blood. He's, he's mourning and praying before the Lord, and he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You ever thought about, what's that cup? It's, it's, uh, it's the wrath of God. Again and again in the Old Testament, you get glimpses of, uh, oh man, this is point by point, that's terrible. Um, you get all these verses that showcase that uh, the wrath of God is a cup. Psalm 75, 8. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours it out on the wicked of the earth. They shall drink it down. The cup is His wrath. Uh, Isaiah 51. There it is. Oh, oh no, it went too far. This is miserable. Thank you, slideshow. Um, Isaiah 51, there's the cup again. I'll give you one other one if you want to look it up. Jeremiah 25, 15. Uh, same thing. The, the cup is a symbol of God's wrath. And when Jesus was sweating blood, it's because He was looking at what He was about to take. The wrath of God for sinners. When, what, the cross with all of its horrors, even all the physical pain that He endured, had nothing compared to the spiritual thing that played out on that cross where God poured out His wrath upon Jesus. Why? So that it could be satisfied. So that God could be just, Romans 3 says, and the justifier. He's not unjust by saving you cleansing your record and forgiving you of your sins. He didn't forgive it uh, in the air. He forgave it because he, Jesus paid for it. You know, our, our righteousness is, uh, is given in a way that doesn't invalidate God's justice. He, it, he, it's upheld because of the propitiation of Christ. So all that to be said, just wanted you to see that God's wrath is real. His justice is true. And uh, how can we be saved if God is truly a just God? Only through Christ. It's, uh, it's back to point two. It's the intervening, interrupting grace of God. So uh, I've stolen an extra minute from you, so let me pray quickly. We'll be all done. God, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for interrupting our lives with your grace. Would you, if there's anyone in this room who that hasn't happened, would you grab them by the hand and pull them towards you? And if we're flirting with sin, would you do the same thing? Would you interrupt our own patterns of death and, and our own inclinations to still destroy our lives even after having trusted in Christ? And would you... Uh, remove sin from us and remove us from sin in such a powerful way like we've seen with Lot. Um, we thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. Would we be men who, who uh, live humble lives and obedient lives in response? Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.